You know, uh, if you've if you've been with us, you know that we've been studying through the book of First Samuel, and today we're in First Samuel chapter twelve. And if you're if you're new to us, the book of First Samuel like chronicles for us the transition in the nation of Israel from kind of living as a bunch of independent tribes like ruled by judges um, to living as a consolidated monarchy under a king. And over the last couple of weeks, Eric last week and me the week before, we got introduced to the the king that got anointed to be king over Israel, and and the the our introduction to him was like a mixed introduction. You know, we're told that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, that Saul, his his name, was of the tribe of Benjamin, and and being from the tribe of Benjamin, um, uh, wasn't necessarily a great thing. In fact, the Benjamites were kind of like the poster children for like the wickedness and sin of Israel. Um, we saw that two weeks ago. And then this last week, we saw that as, as, uh, as Saul is introduced to the nation of Israel as a leader, he's kind of presented as a little bit, uh, I don't know what word I would use, dumb, uh, uh, passive, reluctant. And, and even though God had done a whole bunch of signs to confirm to Saul that he was to be the king and that God was going to use him to deliver him from deliver his people from their enemies, that Saul in his like unfaith and unbelief was like a reluctant passive leader and didn't really do anything. You know, interestingly enough, like uh, we ended last week or one of the verses, chapter 10, verse 25 last week, it says this, it says, then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. It's just an interesting statement because in the Old Testament law, God anticipated this day, this day when they would ask for a king to be put over them. And he gave some guidelines for the future king that the future king was to follow. And this is one of them in Deuteronomy 17. And it says this, it says, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel." You know, the reality is this, is that for Saul, like his success as a king wasn't going to be dependent upon his natural personality. It wasn't going to be dependent upon his birth. It wasn't going to be dependent upon anything other than whether or not he was going to follow the, the law of the Lord. And in the story we come in today, we, like that question is still unanswered. We don't know how Saul is going to respond as a king because he hasn't done anything yet. And the story we're going to look at today, for those of you that know the trajectory of Saul's life, it might surprise you that Saul starts off really, really good. And we're going to see in this story God, like him following the Lord and and God using him to deliver the the people from from their enemies. But the reality is this, is is that obedience to Christ is an everyday decision. And Saul made a good decision at the beginning. But shortly, as as we go on in the story of 1 Samuel, you'll see that his life takes a turn for the worst, and and he doesn't follow the law of the Lord, and his life and his dynasty as king come to, like, complete ruin. You know, as we get into the story today, we're going to see the nation of Israel is in it, isolated in unbelief. This is one of the, these are my three points this morning, isolated in unbelief, that's verses 1 through 3. 
Then we're going to see the nation of Israel unify under their king in verses 4 through 10. And then we're going to see some descriptions about the day of deliverance in verses 11 through 15. So if you could stand with me as I read God's word, I'm just going to open with those first three verses and then pray and we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for his church. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabeth Gilead. And all the men of Jabeth said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all of Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to them, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for its power over over the enemy, and I thank you for Jesus Christ, that he sits as king over this world. And Father, I just ask that you would um, empower me today to be able to speak his word so that we could see Jesus lifted up and we could worship him as, as our true king um, who will come to make all things right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get started in this story, it was kind of a funny place to end because, you know, we just end with eyes being gouged out, right? Or at least the, at least the uh, desire to have people's eyes gouged out is as you come into this story where, where we're immediately, like after this scene where Saul gets uh, anointed as king of Israel in chapter 10, we're immediately thrown onto the battlefield where the uh, uh, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, has besieged the city of Jabeth-Gilead. And you can imagine, it's just like any other siege and, you know, from all the medieval movies that you might have watched where the armies are encamped around it. They're starving. They're seeking to starve them out. And it's kind of like this waiting game of who's going to cave first. And apparently, the citizens of Jabeth Gilead were finally brought to their knees and they wanted to tap out. And so they, made a, they, were made, they offered to make a covenant with the, the king of Ammon, um, the Ammonite, and, and they said that we will serve you. We'll, we'll, we'll appoint you as our king, and we'll serve you um, as long as you just let us live. And Nahash the Ammonite has this interesting response. He's like, well, I'll do that under one condition, that I can gouge out each of your eyes. Just your, just your right eye, though. Not that bad, Right? You know, Nahash, is, 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 like this, these first three verses like really set the tone for us because they illustrate to us several things. First of all, they illustrate to us like how fragmented the nation of Israel was at this point. Remember, like Saul hadn't done anything as king. There's still these kind of like disjointed tribes. They're still in that point of time where everybody was just living as an autonomous authority to themselves and were just doing what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges, the one right before this, chronologically ends. That, that in those days there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the king of Ammon, if you think about it, we find out from verse 4 that he must have accepted their proposal um, to send out messengers throughout all of Israel to ask for help. Which if you're the, if you're the attacking like, king on, on a, a city, that's the last thing you want them to do, right? Is to send out messengers to all the cities of Israel to like rally an army to come to their aid. But I think the king of Ammon understood what the book of Judges told us, that everybody in Israel was so self-centered, so motivated by their own gain, so about their own thing, that he had nothing to worry about. In fact, we find out it says that he wanted to gouge out their eyes so that it would be a reproach upon the whole nation of Israel. 
What he's talking about there is he wanted everybody in Israel to know that when he took that city and he gouged out their eyes, every time they saw one of the citizens of, of, of Jabeth Gilead with their eye gouged out, he wanted it to be a constant reminder of their cowardice, their lack of like duty and loyalty and honor, and that they let their countrymen like fall to like his rule. He wanted to, this constant reminder in Israel of, of just their self-centered cowardice and shame upon them. So he wanted to gouge out their eyes. You know, and so citizens gave us the idea, let me, let's reconsider this proposal, you know. And so they send out their messengers. And it's interesting what happens is, is um, well, before I get there, sorry, like they, the other thing that we see is the faithlessness of Israel in this. Because when they, when they come up with a solution, they don't pay any notion to God himself, They don't pay any attention to the king that was just anointed. In fact, we find out, if you look ahead in chapter 12, verse 12, uh, I'm I'm not going to read it, but there it says that the reason why they asked for a king was because the king of the Ammonites was coming up against them. So, like, Saul was the solution, according to the nation of Israel, to this Ammonite problem that's happening right now here in chapter 11, and yet the the citizens of Jabeth Gilead had very little like desire to like go ask Saul. In fact, they don't even mention Saul, and they say we're going to send out messengers everywhere like throughout Israel, and hopefully somebody will come to our aid. They don't appeal to the Lord. They don't appeal to the one that God promised he would deliver them through. They just kind of send out this Hail Mary throughout all of Israel. The people of Jabeth Gilead were isolated, and they were faithless, and they were just kind of throwing up a last-ditch effort to keep their eyes from being gouged out. And you also see their, you also see their disbelief in the fact that, you know, that back in chapter nine and chapter ten, they wanted to have a king like the nations, who would go out before them and fight their battles, is what they said. And here they have a battle. They don't appeal to the king, and instead of appealing to the king that God had appointed. They immediately turn, and who, do, who are they willing to like ally with? They want to make a covenant with the king of Ammon. Not only do they want a king like the nations, they want a king from the nations. They're, they're, rather than trust in the Lord and his deliverance through Saul, they're just going to sign a deal with the king of Ammon. You know, that brings us to our second point, you know, is, is that this word go out. Actually, yeah, this word goes out throughout all of Israel. And then we pick up here that, they, that the nation of Israel like unifies under their king. Look what happens in verse 4. It says, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's Saul's hometown, and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. So let's think about this for a second. So the, the, the messengers just happen to come to Saul's hometown. And when they come to Saul's hometown, they tell them this news. Hey, unless we get an army together and go fight the Ammonites and deliver this city, all of their eyes are going to get got. Well, just one. You, when I say all of their eyes, I mean all of them individually from now on. I don't have to keep clarifying, right? Like, you get it? One eye? When I say all eyes? All right, okay. I want to be accurate. <laughs> What's that? Eye, eye? One eye. One eye. Not two. So, I, man, it's too easy to get me off task, right? Okay. 
So when the messengers come, look at the response of the city. The response of the city is, is that they just break down and weep. What doesn't happen? There's no this like rushing to get their armor. There's no like rallying and appealing to the Lord. They just break down in sorrow as if the destruction of the eye of Jabez Gilead is like a foregone conclusion. They just begin to weep. And then they, the interestingly enough, the messengers don't even go tell Saul. Jabez Gilead don't even go tell Saul. Like, it, it seems like everybody in the story up until this point is completely indifferent to the existence of Saul, even though God had just anointed him as their king. Because Saul, like, instead of like, like responding to this Ammonite threat that caused him to be appointed king, what's he doing? He's out in his field driving his tractor, Right? He's plowing behind the yoke of oxen, and he doesn't have any idea what's going on. No one even thinks to tell him until he wanders into town, and they still don't tell him. He actually has to ask, hey, like, why is everybody crying? You know, you just see disbelief and a lack of confidence in the Lord and in how the Lord has promised to work, like pervade the nation of Israel here until this moment in chapter chapter 6, I mean in verse 6. I'll start at verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabeth. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Think about that for a second, because usually when we think about, in fact, in chapter, in chapter 10, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, and he was able to speak God's word and prophesy to the people. Usually we don't associate, like, the Spirit of God coming upon somebody with anger, right? In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the deeds of the flesh are anger, wrath, malice, slander, and it goes on, right? But here the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he becomes angry. I'm going to come back to that. But just let that kind of stick in your head for a second. And what he does, verse 7, is he takes a yoke of oxen, cuts them into pieces, and sends them out throughout the whole of Israel, it says. And he says with the messengers, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. So what Saul does is he sends this relatively gruesome message throughout all of Israel. And the point of that, and I'll just shorten it up for the sake of time this morning, is that he was letting the people of Israel know that they have a duty to respond to their brothers and sisters who are in like under the oppression of the enemy. And that, and but kind of by cutting up the oxen, what he's symbolizing to them is that if you don't fulfill your duty as a citizen of the nation of Israel, like you're going to fall under the curse of, of like covenant disobedience. And he sends that message out. And and the amazing thing that happens is all of these disunified people who just did their own thing all the time, what does it say? They came out as one man. There was this complete unity as they came out under the leadership of Saul as he was filled with the Spirit. And they send messengers back to to Jabez Gilead. I'll start at verse 8. And he numbered them in Bezek. We'll look at that in a minute. But, and the sons of Israel were 300, and the men of Judah were 30,000. There's this huge army that forms. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabeth-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. So the messengers sent and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. 
Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. And, then, and it happened the next morning that Saul and the people, and I'll, I'll get that in a minute. I love verse 10. Because what happens is the messengers go out, like the king of Ammon in his confidence that the people of Israel are too like self-centered to like respond to this, um, you know, gave like the messengers free passage in and out of the city. They come back into the city and they tell people, they tell the city like, hey, you're going to be delivered by tomorrow, like when the sun's hot in the sky. And, and they, then, the, then they respond by telling the king of Ammon, hey, tomorrow we're going to come out and you can do whatever is, you seem is good to, to you. What they failed to tell him is that there's also this army of 330,000 people that are also going to come out to you tomorrow, and things might not turn the way you think they would. And we'll talk about that in just a minute, like God's that day of deliverance that happens. But we have this story, and, and, and I want to go back to when it talks about how Saul was filled with the Spirit and was angry. You know, uh, throughout 20 and 21, I've heard lots of, like, there's been lots of buzz around verses like this. I haven't heard this one specifically, but verses like, well, Jesus went into the temple and overturned the tables, right? Or passages in Scripture that are called laments. Like, over the last couple of years, and rightly so, there was this emphasis on, on passages of Scripture that are called laments. And what laments are is this expression of, of the people of God that, that is often mixed with sorrow. Sometimes it's mixed with anger that just mourns over the realities of what it is to live in this world. Like, sometimes there are laments over that the fact that this world is not like what it should be. And we see that all around us, right? Sometimes there are laments over the fact that there's the sorrow and anger over the fact that we as God's people aren't who we should be. Sometimes it's personal, like, man, I am not what I should be. You know, and the reality is, as I, as I, think, that, and as I think that people like over 2020 and 2021, like the, the reason why I heard so much about passages like this one, where a person filled by the Spirit of God became angry, was because people are just angry. And people wanted a way to justify their anger. You know, in fact, like uh, Mark somebody, I can't pronounce his last name, um, had this quote about what laments are. See that last name? You think Manzauer is bad. Um, anybody know how to pronounce that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, whatever. Um, he says this, Lament is more than tears and sorrow. It turns to the Savior who promised to return. Lament vocalizes the longing for the day when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The problem that I saw around so much of the conversation that happened with lament and Saul's like anger here is kind of an expression of that, is, is that it was just a, an excuse to vent our anger and it never brought us to the, to the focus on Jesus Christ and the fact that he is going to come and restore all things. In fact, what we find out in the pages of Scripture is that, and what we find out here is that, is that it's the king who saves his people. You know, I think oftentimes our, our, we, we want to take a verse like verse 6. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he was angry. So me, I'm going to be angry too, and I'm just going to like lash out and vent at you. Or Jesus got mad and turned over the tables, so now I'm going to get mad and turn over the tables, right? Or you guys heard anything like that the last couple of years? Just one, two, three. Okay, well, the rest of you guys are just happy people. Um, or at least hang out with happy people. You might be the angry ones. Um, the four of us heard you guys all saying it. 
the, prob- what, the problem is, is we don't, you don't want to go to Old Testament stories and just draw a straight line from this Old Testament character to yourself. Oh, Jesus did this, so I'm going to be this way. Saul did this, so I'm going to be that way. Because that, the scriptures aren't like Aesop's fables. This is a time of equipping for you. Sunday school teachers, please listen to this because you spend lots of times in the Old Testament. The scriptures aren't like Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables will tell a story with some characters in it and it will teach a good moral lesson. And so if, if you look at this story, you apply this moral lesson and, right, and you go about your life and you'll be happier because of it, whatever. These are scriptures, and because of the scriptures, that, that sometimes there's good moral lessons to draw out, but the main purpose of them isn't to teach us moral lessons. It's to point us to Jesus Christ. You know, and, and we shouldn't be wanting to identify with Saul here. If we're going to identify with anyone in this story, we should be identifying maybe with the people of Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead who are sitting under the oppression of the enemy and who have no hope and who are considering tapping out and following after like a pagan king. Or maybe we should be like, the, we should maybe identify with the nation of Israel who is mourning because they don't, they have so little belief in God's ability to deliver them that they just become overwhelmed with grief and have no solution as if, as if their like f- destruction as God's people is a foregone conclusion. And if we, if we begin to look at the scriptures that way and we realize like, oh, we're not Saul, we're the people of Israel. And what you see Saul as is what? Like in this story, he was anointed in chapter 10. The spirit came upon him in chapter 10. The spirit came upon him again here in chapter 11, right? You have the, you have the anointed, the spirit anointed king of Israel who is angry at the oppression of his people and arises to deliver them. Do you see that? It's not about, oh, I should be angry like Saul. That, guy, that, that just trivializes the scripture. We have the spirit-anointed king of Israel arising to deliver them and his people rally under him. And if we begin to look at things that way, it makes all the difference. Because sometimes we do need to address the injustices of this world on a big level. Sometimes we do need to speak, but we need to speak in a way that is so deeply rooted in our submission to Christ as our king and so deeply saturated by his character and his love for this world that it changes the tone of how we communicate. It is not just a rant against whatever. We need to be people who are so deeply committed to his purposes and his solution for mankind that that. We operate in a way that promotes the gospel, that, that speaks the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that, that, that seeks to put the beauty of the church on display so that the world can see that the reign of Christ is good and precious and beautiful and life-giving. Too often, we just follow after the kings of the nations and we just lash out in anger about all of our own things and we, and we don't realize, like, no, it is the spirit-anointed king of Israel, Jesus Christ, who's going to deliver us. And it's only as we rally under him that things will change. You know, the reality is it's, it's Saul who turned the tables. It had very little to do with the people. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple things I, 
I think could be helpful for us because not only does this speak to how we address those big picture issues, like maybe in our culture, in the, and I'm not going to talk specifics, but it's really that, that heart posture. Is my heart posture one where I'm, where I'm in submission to Jesus Christ and I'm devoted to his purposes and, I'm, and I'm, my, the priority for me is, the, is his solution for the world, which is the truth of the gospel and his rule in people's lives? Or am I, am I ex- communicating and expressing something that, that pushes people further away from the gospel or that, may, or that communicates that my hope is in something else? Whatever your, whatever your passion might be, it needs to be like brought under submission to the spirit-anointed king of Israel who is angry at the oppression of his people and arises to deliver them. And you might think, like, is it really okay to say that Jesus is angry? And that he's going to arise to deliver his people? Because this speaks to like this speaks to personal stuff, because if you've lived very long, you have experienced injustice at the hand of somebody else, right? Sometimes that might be great injustice or victimization at the hands of someone. Sometimes it might be like minor ones that feel like great injustices. Anybody not experience that? Did I ask that the right way? Yeah, okay. I was, I'm going to start asking negative questions so that when you fail to respond to me, I get the answer I want, right? Yeah, we all experience that. And we have to realize, like, it's not for me primarily to be the angry, judgmental one. Because oftentimes when we just want to, like, apply those things straight to us, it's really just seeking to justify our pharisaical, judgmental, uh, condemning, like, language upon others instead of being like the good Samaritan who crossed, like, all sorts of lines to, like, demonstrate love to somebody like who was sociologically different than him, who was economically different than him, who, who was religiously different than him. And I'll throw in politically different than him. You know, Jesus, it, but, then, but then there's this personal part to it too. Like if you're wrong personally, man, it, it is so hard to forgive. And oftentimes we think like, we just have this like Pollyannish sort of view of forgiveness. Like, oh, Jesus forgives everybody, so I should forgive everybody. That's true to a point. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us something quite different. Like Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. There's a whole section here, but I'm just going to read these two verses this morning. It says this. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Did you hear that? We have a king who is angry at the victimization and oppression of his people, and vengeance belongs to him, and he will repay it. So what should we do? We should live at peace with everybody. We should never take our own revenge. In fact, he goes on and says, like, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Not because, like, the injustices don't matter, but because we know justice will be served one day, like, inescapably. It'll either be fully, like, poured out upon that person in judgment for all eternity, or to be fully poured out and satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. But either way, when we get there, we are never going to say that God didn't deal justly with that. So what it does is it empowers us to be able to just let it go if we trust the Lord, right? If we trust the Lord to do what he says he's going to do. 
another passage. We're called to patience, not just trust. We're called to patience in Second Thessalonians 1. He's talking to the church. He was suffering under like tremendous like persecution. He says, he says this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is New Testament stuff here. I'm not making this up. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And I think if I remember the passage right, it goes on saying, dealing out retribution. We have a king who arises to deliver his people and judge wickedness so we can let it go. But we need to trust him and we need to be patient in it. You know, that brings us to the day of deliverance. I, I love the response of the, the people in verse, um, in verse, uh, where was it? Oh, in verse 9, it says, and they told the men of Jabesh, right at the end of verse 9, and they told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Before they were delivered, there was this joy as the people of Jabesh were kind of brought to belief that God was going to happen. And then on the day of deliverance, we have this battle scene. I have a map that I'll just throw up there real quickly. Map, there it is. The yellow line here represents this particular battle, the King Saul. And, and what happened is it says that they rallied together at the, the town of Bezek right there, which is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. But um, So they had this huge army rallied at Bezek, which is some miles away from Jabesh Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which made it particularly vulnerable to the Ammonites. And so what happened is this army was gathered there, and what we find out uh, starting at... Uh, starting in verse 11. And it happened the next morning that Saul put his people into three companies and they came in the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came about that those who survived were scattered and not, and no two of them were left together. So what happened is that there was this, there was this like march through the night from Bezek down to the city of Jabesh Gilead. And just the morning watch is just as the sun's coming up. Just as the sun's coming up, all of a sudden this army of Israel had crossed the Jordan River through the night, had surrounded the Ammonites with three different armies, and attacked them. It was this huge victory where it says that, that those who didn't flee, I mean, those who didn't die fled, and they were scattered so, so badly that no two of them were left together. The isolation and the, that the people of Jabesh Gilead felt at the beginning of the story, now it falls upon the Ammonites where each person is just hiding in fear and in isolation by himself. God had this great deliverance. You know, the people's response is interesting then in verse 12. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that says, Shall Saul reign over, over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. I'm just going to end the text there for this week but, um, and comment on those two verses. So what happened in chapter 10 is after Saul got anointed king, there was a whole group of people that were like, this guy's this guy a numbskull. Like, he can't deliver us from our enemies. In fact, I think that's the last words in, in chapter 10. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. 
So what happened is, is Saul, who everyone felt indifferent about at the end of this story, they are completely infatuated with at the end of the story because God had this great deliverance through him. And they said, oh, who are those guys that said that Saul wasn't going to be a good king? Bring him here and let's execute them all, right? They kind of swing. That's politics for you, I guess, like indifference to infatuation, right? He has victory, and now they're all about King Saul. They're unified under him, and they want to put people to death. And Saul says this in verse 13, We're not going to put anyone to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. He takes their attention away from himself, and he focuses on the Lord, and he tells them, you know what, there is a day for deliverance, and there's a day for judgment, but today is a day of deliverance. Today is the day of like freedom where, where the king of Israel like came and saved his people. You know, it reminds me of another king, our true king, who at the beginning of his like life on this earth had said something similar. It's in Luke chapter 4. It's at the beginning of Jesus' like earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. He walks, into, he walks into a synagogue, and this is what he says. This is what Luke tells us. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Do you hear that? He's the Spirit's anointed king. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a really interesting passage, because what Jesus does is he comes in the synagogue, he opens up Isaiah, and he reads this text, and he says like, This is the the year of the Lord's favor. This is the day of redemption and God's blessing. It's a day to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim release to the poor and the captives and whatever it all said. Release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The reason why it's really interesting is that not only is the spirit anointed king like proclaiming the day of deliverance, just like Saul did. But in Isaiah, yeah, go back. In Isaiah, it ends, there's this, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord is a comma. Jesus like ends his quote in the middle of a sentence. He says, this is the day of all of that. And the very next phrase in Isaiah 61 is this, and the day of vengeance of our God. It's an amazing thing that Jesus does. Is he's like, he's like, right now I'm here to proclaim freedom and release and grace and God's favor and blessing upon things. And, that, and that's the age that we live in. You know, if you look at the New Testament, the New Testament takes all of this military language and applies it to the work of the gospel. Paul talks about like spiritual warfare and the armor of God and and then goes right into the proclamation of the gospel. The spirit of God comes upon his people for what purpose? To proclaim Jesus Christ. This is the, the time of God's favor, the time of proclaiming the gospel to everybody. And we live in that time of that comma. But there will be a day of vengeance. It's a heavy thought. 
there will be a day of vengeance. There will be a day when the king of Israel arises and finally delivers us from the oppression of the enemy. There will be a day when every wrong will be made right. There will be a day when all things will be restored. But today, we live in this time of God's favor, in this time of like the proclaiming the gospel. We need to be people who have that as our first and foremost like goal because that was Jesus' first and foremost goal. He didn't die to like move your agenda forward. He didn't die for a political party. He didn't die for, right? But, so you could have a nicer house. He died so you could be reconciled to God, that you could become an agent of reconciliation to this world that needs to hear that message, to give us hope, to give us peace, to, to send us out in this world as agents of his love and his grace and his favor to others. But we need to uh, trust him so that we can be people who like trust him to make rights or wrongs so that we can release those things. We need to be a people who is patient in his timing and in the midst of all is faithful in all things. So Marv, why don't you come up to close us? You know, if you're here this morning and, and this message that, that, that today is the day of God's, to proclaim the year of God's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Like, know that both of those things are true. That God is a God of justice. He's, a, he's also a God who sent his son into this world to bear your guilt and your shame and your sin upon himself so that you could be set free. He arose when he saw the oppression of us as his people deliver us. Interestingly enough, Nahash, I don't, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly either, but his name means the serpent. The, the anointed king of Israel came to crush the serpent's head, and he will one day come again and do away with him forever. So Marv, why don't you close us, and then we'll close us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for that reality that you are the truly anointed, true king of your people and that you have arisen to save us and deliver us and, and you will come back to deliver us again. And Father, I just ask that you would help us to live as people who, who navigate this world and all the sorrows of it, as, as people of hope because we believe that that to be true, as people who represent you well, as people who, who are about your purposes and not our own, and that you would glorify yourself in each of us individually and us as a community of people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.